Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the globalized the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson bringing to you this week news from the Philippines, Sudan, and the United States. Starting with the Philippines, we have some indications that the dictator of the Philippines, uh, President Duterte, uh, will not be supporting his daughter in the upcoming presidential elections in that country, uh, but will rather be supporting the child of a different dictator from Philippines history. Uh, that guy is Ferdinand Marcos. Uh, this is coming from Bloomberg. Marcos, that is the son, is also named Ferdinand. His name is Ferdinand Jr. Uh, his nickname is Bongbong. And he is a serving member of the Philippine government and has been uh, for several decades uh, after the ouster of his father. Uh, Ferdinand Marcos was the dictator of the Philippines from 1965 to 1986 and is famous for being arguably the most corrupt leader in modern world history. By some estimations, he and his family stole upwards of 10 to $12 billion dollars uh, from that country's national government. However, his family remains relatively popular and, of course, very well connected in that country. And polling in the upcoming presidential election in the Philippines indicates that uh, Ferdinand Jr. is doing very, very well, uh, significantly better than Duterte's own child, Sarah, uh, who was also a contender in the election. Now, you might be asking yourself, why would he support uh, somebody who you know, is the offspring of a different dictator as opposed to himself. Uh, and this is potentially because, you know, like the best guesses that we have are that he really needs to support somebody who's going to win um, because of uh, the potential for prosecution or other legal proceedings against him for his activity while the president of the Philippines. Specifically, uh, I talked about this a few weeks ago, he is arguably potentially like chargeable for crimes against humanity in the International Criminal Court for his government's activities in the name of, you know, their war on drugs, uh, which has killed um, several tens of thousands of Philippine citizens. In the Sudan, we also have some uh, anti-democratic activity on the part of, you know, non-democratically elected actors. Uh, there was a military coup in Sudan uh, earlier this week on Monday. Uh, the military has arrested the prime minister and the president is no longer in power and they have halted the transition process, which was a power sharing agreement between the military and a transitional civilian government uh, that the uh, arrested prime minister was a member of. So the military has stopped this transition process, uh, which began after the fall of Sudan's previous dictator, Omar al-Bashir. Uh, they have set up a new transition council for elections uh, that they say will be held in 2023, a likely story for those of you who are familiar with how military coups and military governments work, especially because even with this promise of eventual transition back to civilian rule, the military is assuring everybody that they will remain involved in politics uh, and that they will not really let their hands off the reins here. The United Nations and various other international organizations have condemned this activity. Uh, this is the second just like straight up military coup in the world this year uh, following the coup in Myanmar back in February. Turning back to the United States, we have news from the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, for those of you who don't recall, Kyle Rittenhouse murdered two people in the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin earlier this summer. 
during the Black Lives Matter protest wave uh, that swept the United States this summer. Uh, Rittenhouse is a, well, as far as we can tell, a white supremacist or at least alt-right youth uh, from uh, Illinois. Uh, He went to Wisconsin in order to engage in political violence. He had an automatic rifle and shot and killed two people in the street. He is now on trial for these murders, uh, but his judge, the judge in his trial, has ruled that the prosecutors cannot call his victims victims. Uh, They're not allowed to use the word victim to refer to those that Rittenhouse murdered. Instead, uh, these people must be referred to as looters, arsonists, or rioters. Now, this is some straight-up 1984-type crap. It's complete and total nonsense, but it is true. Uh, This is coming from the Associated Press. Uh, What this means is that structurally, in the case, Rittenhouse is being presented not by his defending attorneys, but by the judge uh, as a law-abiding citizen who was trying to protect businesses, uh, which is what Rittenhouse's own defense is. Uh, This is the government of the United States, the actual legal apparatus, protecting a fascist who killed two people in the street earlier this year. And speaking of fascists killing people in the street, we have news from a recent uh, Turning Point USA, that's TPUSA conference uh, that was held in Idaho earlier this week. Uh, The news comes uh, from a speech given by Charlie Kirk, who's the founder of this organization. Uh, At this conference, there was a question and answer period. And Charlie Kirk received a question from one of the attendees of the conference. And it was a very long-winded question. I mean, if you've ever been to a a conference, especially one held by fascists, you'll know that uh, people do a lot of, uh, this is more of a statement than a question type thing. Um, But this this particular attendee had a specific question for Charlie Kirk. And his question was, when do we get to use the guns? Uh, and he meant this literally. He meant, uh, if you we believe, as Charlie Kirk does and as many of the other people in the extreme right of the United States political spectrum at least claim to believe, uh, that the government of the United States has been stolen from Donald Trump and his supporters, um, that it is being transformed from within uh, along the lines of racial justice and gender equality and all of these things that uh, these people hate. They believe that the government is being stolen from them. They believe that they're being oppressed. They believe that, you know, vaccine mandates and mask mandates are the government's creeping power in civilian life. Uh, this question asker essentially is saying like, okay, well, so then like, when do we start to kill people? When, when do we start to kill our political opponents? Uh, the people at the rally loved this question. Charlie Kirk, of course, is an actual professional political actor uh, and knew a lot better than to jump on this particular bandwagon. Uh, he, his answer was essentially that, well, you, you don't get to kill people until you have exhausted all other potential means uh, to take control back from what he calls the fascists. And by that, he means, I guess, like milk toast social democracy from the Biden administration. Uh, he, you know, tried to pull the rally back into supporting small government and, you know, like Idaho taking its government into its own hands and stuff like that. Um, the rally attendees were having none of this. Uh, Kirk and others in the extreme right of the U.S. political spectrum are learning 
time and time again that their supporters like want blood in a very literal sense. Uh, they want to kill people. They're ready to kill people. And as this movement increases and grows and organizes along its own lines, uh, these kinds of political organizers might find themselves being left in the dust of the movements that they have themselves uh, perpetuated and helped to organize. That finally brings me to what I think is the most explosive news this week. This is coming out of the Rolling Stone. Uh, the news is that some of the organizers of the January 6th attempted coup earlier this year at Capitol Hill in the United States say that they were working with members of the United States Congress directly uh, prior to the uh, coup itself, uh, that they spoke with congressional representatives, uh, that they spoke with congressional aides, and even more explosively, uh, that they were offered political favors in exchange for their activities during the coup. Uh, these two sources, who are anonymous for now, allege that they have met with nearly a dozen U.S. House offices, representatives, or their staff members prior to or on the day of January 6th. Uh, they have named some names. Uh, among these names are, you know, your typical list of Trump uh, members of the House of Representatives. So that's Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Paul Gosar from Arizona, Mo Brooks from Alaska, Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina. Paul Gosar specifically uh, is a major go-between between the Trump wing of the Republican Party and what was the alt-right, you know, just the, the fascist movement in the United States. Madison Cawthorn is one of the, I guess, millennial members of Congress um, and has made news fairly often recently for not just once, but multiple times trying to bring uh, weapons onto domestic flights in the United States. Um some of these people were also the ones who were speaking at the rally itself on January 6th, and so their involvement with the planning of it uh, is no surprise. Uh, specifically, Paul Gosar was one of the people who spoke at the rally, and the organizers who spoke with Rolling Stone allege not only that he was in on planning the rally and the storming of the Capitol, but that he specifically acted as a go-between uh, with Trump and the fascists offering them pardons for their actions on that day. Now, this is like this is like an actual smoking gun, uh, if it can be proven. If these allegations are true uh, and can be proven with like meeting times, schedules, call lists, that sort of thing, it could really mean like opening up potential treason allegations against some members of Congress for helping people to storm offices of government, and trying to prevent the installation of a new political party. Now, that's some pretty explosive news. Uh, we're going to have to see how these allegations shake out and what it looks like when they actually see the light of day, uh, when these sources become public. Uh, they have said to Rolling Stone that they are willing to actually testify in court uh, to the effect of what they shared in this, you know, in this reporting exclusive. But these kinds of things are complicated, right? And if they're claiming that they had the kind of access that they did prior to the coup, who knows what kind of political context they still have. Uh, we're going to have to see how this plays out, which is something that I've been saying a lot recently, but that's the thing. Uh, this is all developing. And in a couple years, when you look back at this period of U.S. history, 
uh, it might seem a little bit more coherent. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll know the end of the story and we'll be able to tell it a little bit differently. But right now, we just really don't know how this is going to play out. All right, I'm going to close this episode as I do with every episode uh, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. Uh, we're sticking with the United States this week, talking about Willis Carto, uh, the leader of the Liberty Lobby and a prominent neo-Nazi in the 20th century. Carto was born in Indiana in the 1920s and served in World War II in the Pacific Theater. Uh, he was injured in the Philippines and, after the war, uh, began a relatively uninteresting life of white-collar jobs. Uh, that was until he moved to San Francisco in the late 1950s and founded the Liberty Lobby, uh, which is a relatively openly neo-Nazi, anti-Semitic uh, political action committee. It published anti-communist content. Uh, specifically, uh, it published a newspaper called Spotlight, an explicitly anti-Semitic weekly newspaper on the extreme right uh, that operated in the United States uh, through, like, until the late 20th century. Carto also founded the Institute for Historical Review, a Holocaust denial organization that is still existent uh, and is uh, headquartered in San Francisco. He also did political work. Uh, specifically, he canvassed for George Wallace and uh, founded the Populist Party, which was a vehicle for white supremacist candidacies throughout the United States. Uh, specifically, David Duke ran on the Populist Party when he sought office in the Deep South. Carto never faced any serious consequences for his right-wing political organizing. Uh, that it became his professional and political life. Uh, he died peacefully of cardiac arrest this week in history, October 26th, 2015 and uh, controversially was even buried at Arlington National Cemetery because of his being a recipient of the Purple Heart during World War II. So, Willis Carto, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Please tell friends, family, and comrades. If you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. You can also get in touch with me at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com uh, for corrections, questions, um, anything that you want to communicate with me about. All right. I will talk to you next week. <laughs>